0: welcome back to the history of south africa podcast with me your host des latham this is episode 119 the story of south africa is incomplete without scrutinizing the kingdom of lesotho not only because geographic location means the mountains are part of our tale but also because The entire region is intertwined like lovers or wrestlers or snakes that are hell-bent on eating each other. Sorry about this graphic description, but by the time you've finished listening to this episode, I'm sure you'll agree with the somewhat over-the-top analogy. We must step back from where we left off last episode, 1835, beginning of 1836, just to understand who King Mushwishwe was and what he means today. During his dramatic youth Events among the northern Nguni who lived below the mountain escarpment were going to impact the people who we now call the Basutu. Before these sudden surges of people and the destruction caused by the Ndebele and the Nguani, the people of the Caledon Valley and into the hills above lived in small segmentary chiefdoms, where the chiefs made political decisions after consulting councillors and headmen. The wars of Zwide, in Zenzangakona and, and Shaka, then Dingaan after him, had profound repercussions throughout the entire region, as you've heard. For some on the Haufelt, the effects were catastrophic. Matawani of Nguani had fled north as Shaka expanded his control, leaving his home along the Umfolozi River, and then attacking the Hlubi, who lived at the source of the Tugela River on the highlands. Some of these defeated Klubi made it to Hinsa, as you've heard in the Koza land, and by 1835 had marched into the Albany district seeking refuge as Mfengu. Small world, they say. Motuani continued attacking homesteads on the Haafelt, joined later by Mzilikazi. The first Basutu to feel the pain of these attackers were the Tlokwa and the Sia people. They lived along the Wilkha river and had been living there for over 100 years. But it was easy to enter their land from the source of the Tugela, upper Tugela Valley because the escarpment is lower in that area. These two people, the Tlokwa and the Seer, shared a common lineage known as the Katla and intermarried. When the first Infitrani invasions began, Sikoniela was the chief of the Tlokwa line known as the Mokotling, but he was a youngster still in his teens. The real boss, as was often the case, was the regent's mother, Mantatisi. For a woman to rule in Susutu custom was rare, but apparently Main Tattisi was an exceptional leader, loyal to her own patronage. Born as a seer, she employed seer counsellors and had Sikunyela brought up by her brother. Then she initiated Sikunyela into a seer, Lobolo. Relations with the Hlubi were somewhat strained and worsened when the Hlubi began running away from the Nguani. But oral tradition and historical records paint a brutal time that followed shortly afterwards. Ma'antatesi had allowed a Lhubi man called Mocholi, who had married a sister of Flubi leader Mpangazita, to settle in her country along with a few hundred of his followers. But Sikunyela had attacked Mocholi around 1817, killed him and hacked off his brass collar as a trophy. A short while later, Mpangazita fled from the expanding Zulu and fell upon the Kloquai and the seer, seizing all the grain and cattle and driving them from their homes. Matawani of the Nguani attacked Mpangazita shortly afterwards. It was a real mess, and the beginning of the Mpatani. By eighteen twenty four three main raiding peoples, led by Mantatisi, Mpangazita, and Matawani of the Nguani, were devastating the Caledon Valley, into which the Boer wheels were going to crunch the bones in eighteen thirty six. Mantatisi got around all right. She raided as far as Bote or Kurutleli, which is outside the modern town of Senegal, and into the triangle between the Orange and the Caledon rivers. Mpangazita and Matawani followed suit, but they swept further west towards the Orange and Caledon confluence, then back towards Lesotho. By 1824, my had settled at Marabeng near Ficksburg on a Mesa-like flat-topped mountain, and Mpangazita set up his camp about 40 kilometres southwest of her at Mabolela, which lies between Ladybrand and Ficksburg. Matawani found himself a suitable nesting spot at Senyotong, near Teyatayaneng. That's about 40 kilometers northeast of where Maseru is today. Needless to say, the proverbial town was too small for the three of them, and in 1825 an extraordinary five-day battle broke out on the right bank of the Caledon, and Mpangazita was killed. It's into this fractured society that Mosheswe had been born. Isolated and conservative, the culture of the region utterly disrupted. Fields were not being cultivated, and entire ruling family lines had been destroyed, vanished into the southern African air. Virtually every musutu had been driven from their homes, subjected to suffering and deprivation. Human remains littered the landscape, and would be found on that landscape for at least another 15 years. Crunch, crunch, went the wagons in 1836. These were the symbols of the disintegration of organized life. Lopsided stone cattle kraals remained, along with crumbling homesteads bereft of people. It was only now that some of these starving people turned to the most horrific of customs, cannibalism. Hunger was the first cannibal, said Rakotswani, the leader of a band of these people-eaters, who became known as the Rakotswani. It devoured us, he told the first French missionaries. Basutu oral tradition is full of these stories too. We know it wasn't just hot air being spouted by folks who were trying to elicit sympathy. No, this is a true story. What was to become of us? asked Rakotsani. Each one ate his dog, then his sandals, then his old antelope caross, finally his leather shield. It's only a small leap from starvation to cannibalism, they say. Then terrible dysentery forced everyone to leave the cave frequently and outside Hyena would take you and drag you to her young. Then we started to rush upon people and devour them, he told a terrified missionary. One of the cannibals who took the greatest pride in eating men, women and children was Larimo, who killed so many that the others killed and ate him. These people admitted they were horrified by what they were doing. Our heart gnawed us from within, said one, which was an ironic description considering the topic. Some Busutu fled as far as the Cape Colony, and here the cannibal stories began to resonate, becoming the main story about the people who lived in these hills. But not everyone was committing these heinous crimes. The first intimation that Mushuishui had of the dangers beyond the mountains was in the early 1820s, when Matawani had penetrated to a village on the Ilans River that Mushuishui had set up to house most of his livestock. Mushuishui retreated to his father's home at Minkwaneng. The attacks didn't stop. This time, Fokeng chief Letuka raided him. Letuka was the son of Mabula, who had fled his own land, also attacked by Matawani. oral tradition tells us that two of Moshweshwe's wives and his livestock were taken, but he counter-attacked Letuka, freeing the prisoners and taking two of Letuka's wives as a kind of revenge motif. What really differentiated Moshweshwe from the other chiefs of this time was his ability to be diplomatic. He wasn't beyond paying tribute to keep more violent chiefs away, including Mpankazita and Matawani. He also began to display a propensity to respond with extreme violence if attacked and diplomacy failed. Sometimes the gifts brought him impunity, sometimes not, mostly not. The clock advanced on Moshreshwe after he moved to Bute which is in the far north of present-day Lesotho, in the Mokotlong district. Mokutlong means the place of the bald arbis, and is close to the source of the Senku river. Mushuishui wasn't one to hang about. He launched a surprise attack on the Tlokwa and drove them from their camp, destroying their cooking pots, and this became known as the Battle of the Pots. Unfortunately, Mushuishui had underestimated the Tlokwa and they counter-attacked driving him south to his father's village at Minkwanning, where the Tlokwa then caught up with him again. So father and son fled deep into the Maloti mountains, where they barely scraped together a living, mainly scavenging food from indigenous plants. Soon, however, Moshwishwe and his father put together a plan and managed to recover their village at Minkwaning from the Tlokwa. Moshueshwe then made it home to Butabote, which is a mountain with a flat top, as many are in this part of Lesotho. It's a sandstone hill about 300 feet high. The summit is about four square kilometers in size. There's a perennial spring along with good pasture to be had on this land. It was regarded as a formidable and natural fortress but could be overcome through the southern side where a neck joins the mountain to the main Maloti range. Meshweshwe and his followers lived in a vast cave just below the summit of Bhuta Bote and on its south side. Then they built a village on top. Throughout this period, the future Basutu king faced opposition from his counsellors who said that only the San lived in caves, the Bushmen, and the Basutu despised the San. The feeling, of course, was very much mutual. This was a time of extreme chaos. Young Sikonyele of the Tlokwa then announced he was going to attack Mushweshwi's father, Mokachani, who led a group of people known as the Mokoteli. Old man Mokotjani had had enough of this fighting business and then handed over the control of the people, to his young and extremely energetic son, Moshweshwe, and this is where his story really starts. Mokochani and his other sons, Makabani and Bosholi, joined Moshweshwe at Butabote. Moshweshwe had built his village on the north side of the most accessible pass by now, and his brothers then defended the other passes. Meanwhile, his half-brother, Mohali, arrived to help out and all began improving the defences, including building large stone walls across the access points and inviting the local Lingaka doctor to sprinkle his medicines along the pass. Both the rocks and the meds appear to have an effect. Sikoniela besieged the family and their supporters on this mountain redoubt for three months, even after other Tlokwa arrived, including Sikoniela's uncle Letlala and a chief called Nkatele. This was going to be a close-run thing, this siege. After two months, the defenders had run out of most of their food and the cattle began to die. The Tlokwa destroyed all their crops and prevented the herds from coming down the mountain, and Mushuishui resorted to various ruses and tricks. Aware that Sikunyela was paranoid, he sent an old woman who carried a magical scarecrow who tried to shoo away the attackers, but the Klokwa may have been paranoid, but they weren't stupid. The problem for Sikunyela was Chief Nkaishle, who taken up position on the western side of the mountain. Moshweshwe managed to convince and conjole Nkaitle to allow the Mokoteli cattle down to eat and drink in the pasture below. This bought Moshweshwe time, and he sent an emissary to an Nguni chief called Sepeka, who decided that Sikunyela was indeed in a weak position. One night in May 1824, Sepeka rolled into Sikunyela's camp, killing many of the Tlokwa, and the siege was thereby lifted. Moshoeshoe realized, however, that his mountain fortress was not the completely inaccessible defensive position that he craved, so he sent a group of 26 warriors, along with his half-brother Mohali, to inspect the land for a better spot. Much of the route lay through cannibal country, an area that was festooned with terrifying bandits who killed passers-by and ate them. Mahali located a better place, and in July 1824, hundreds of the people left Butabote for the 120-kilometer journey through mountainous terrain threatened by cannibals. It took them three days, including a freezing night on the Lipetu Pass, where some of the older people and the pregnant women and children were attacked by a cannibal band. Rakotsani was back. Meshweshwai's rescue party freed most of the women and children, but the cannibals had caught his grandfather, Pete, and ate him. What an horrifying vision, and this experience was part of what made Meshweshwai so difficult to fight later when the British and the Boers met him. The intensity of this period also caused Meshweshwai to reflect on the meaning of life, and of all the southern African chiefs, he was one of the more responsive when it came to the missionaries' messages of salvation. Having a grandfather eaten by local cannibals tends to lead to intense soul-searching, some would say. Eventually, this group of refugees arrived at a mountain that Mohali had identified, and stones were smeared with special protective medicine, then driven into the ground at the tops of the passes, and the sites were selected for his cattle kraal, his lekotla, as well as his personal hut. Mishweshwi reflected on what to call this imposing mountain and settled on the name Tababusiw mountain by night, because he and his people had arrived there in the evening. And just because we're dealing with our history, it must be said that this place was going to gain quite a name, helped along by Mushreshwe's clever narrative, his propaganda, if you like. He often told people that the mountain was magical and at night would somehow grow larger. Well, generally speaking, if you approach a mountain at night and look up, it always appears larger than during the day. Another interesting fact, is that sound is amplified in strange ways by mountains, adding to the mystery of the steep slopes. Tabo is another of the Mises, the flat-topped mountain so famous across this region, and lies in the valley of the Little Caledon River, 25 kilometers east of its junction with the Caledon itself. The mountain is detached from other hills. It rises over 350 feet from the valley, with sheer cliffs along its sides that are up to 40 feet high. There are six passes, but they are more like fissures in the rock than real passes. They are very steep, very narrow. Not a place you want to be scrambling up as Basutu lob rocks onto your head. Its summit is more than four square kilometers in size, and there are a number of perennial springs with good pasturage. Sikoniela was not to be thwarted, however. He pitched up and built his home on a nearby mountain called Marabeng. Mushreshri, however, had an incredible ability to read the landscape and to understand the broader significance of locations. By choosing the left bank of the Kaledin River, it meant the attackers would first have to cross this significant geographical feature to get to Tabo Busu, whereas Sikonila's fastness was on the right bank. And Tabo Busu was concealed behind the Berea Plateau among the foothills of the Maloti Mountains, whereas Marabeng stuck out like a sore thumb particularly exposed to the invaders who continued to sweep in following the course of the Caledon Valley. The Maloti Mountains were also a great place of refuge, and Mushuishwe stored his surplus livestock there inside hidden valleys, unseen by roving bands of thugs. Mushuishwe was 38. He had found his home and lived on Tababusu for another 46 years, presiding over a remarkable expansion, consolidation and defence of his people and when he died he was to be buried there. But there's a lot of life left in Moshweshwe at this point. Matawani of Nguani meanwhile was building a new composite kingdom in the Kaladin valley similar to what Mzilikatsi was doing in the Transvaal. Matuani had defeated the Klubi and dominated all Nguni and Basutu people he'd conquered. He was trying to turn his other neighbors into vassals and Moshweshwe's Mokateli clan living on Tabo Busiu, served his purpose. They shielded him from attacks by Northerners. There's a lot of water under the Caledon River Bridge. Mushweshri had secured the valley of this little Caledon, which had been occupied by Basutu under a who was of the Inzani lineage. Norne had ousted the previous inhabitants from Tabubusiu area, and Mushweshri's brothers, Posholi and Makabani, then launched a raid on Norne's sorghum fields. He responded. Seizing Mokoteli cattle, and a series of attacks and counterattacks took place until Mushweshwe routed Noni in a battle and took control of the valleys around Tabo Busu. There was a great deal going on around the Kaladin in the barrier just before the trekkers rolled in. Mushweshwe was also in dispute with Maketa, who had been driven south from his home in northern Lesotho by Matawani and then settled south-southeast of Tabo Busu at a place called Tlotle. It's called Roma today. Mushweshwe's mountain fastness became known as a retreat for all those suffering these raiders and new adherents arrived swiftly. Mokakalaini, who hated his brother Sekuniela of the Klokwa, Kobani, chief of the Marabi section, Leteli, who had been driven from Lothlorwaini mountain, Klokulain, as it's known now. Mushweshwe respected Leteli and made him a counsellor. Soon, Tabubusi was full of numerous individuals and family groups of humble and important origins all attaching themselves to the chief of the mountain by night. Some were Basutu, some were Nguni, including the Lhubi. Perhaps the most important person who arrived now was Tzapi, a diviner known for his astute and accurate observations. He was Nguni, not Basutu. Exactly from where was a matter of conjecture. He was one of these mystical people that we hear about in world history, a person who has gifts of prophecy, extremely intelligent wielders of knowledge who have a hold on men and women of power. Tzapi told a group of his followers during the siege of Bhutebhoti that in six days' time new enemies would attack Sekunyala and defeat him. He purposefully did this with an earshot of Mushweshwe. He was proven correct. He also said that the Basutu would move south to occupy another mountain and when they moved, he sat with Mushuishwe one night and said to him, all the black races will be broken in by you. Which is pretty true. Tsapi lived alongside Moshweshwe, a trusted confidant, until his death in 1871, and Moshweshwe never embarked on any raid or military expedition without first consulting Tsapi, who many believed actually had some kind of mystical hotline to Moshweshwe's ancestors. More about the mountain by night, Tsape, and how the Basutu expanded their power, just as the Grikwa, Zulu and Boers were expanding theirs next episode. Folks often ask these days why Lesotho is a country when it's seemingly so small and embedded in South Africa. Hopefully, by the end of episode 120, that preconception will be discarded when you hear why the Basotho are so proud to be independent. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, it helps increase the visibility. Don't forget to head over to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at DesLathan. Until next, silently